back to the book of 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> we had been in the book of 2 Corinthians, started it a couple of months ago, and then we had to uh, get out of it for Christmas. We had a, a special thing at Christmas we talked about, and then last week we had a, a message that I wanted to bring to you about the new year and, and try to encourage you and challenge you on that. But, you know, uh, today uh, we want to get back into this book. I, I don't know of a book that I've taught that I have been more excited about, I think because of what I've already told you of where we're at as a church and, and learning how to minister to people and taking the examples that God has put right in front of us and then showing you the principles how it applies. And we have learned so far that true Bible ministry, and you know that's a big thing today, all churches talk about ministry, all pastors are supposed to be ministers, all Christians are supposed to be ministers, but we uh, have learned so far that the definition of, of ministry is, uh, is uh, going through the sufferings of people that God has put into your life uh, and going through the tough times that they have. And, and many times we go through the things that we go through in life. I told you how that even the dumb things that we do in life, even the bad mistakes that we made in life, if a person wants to do what's right and, and change their life, God will take those things and through those let you help somebody else down the line. And sometimes you go through the suffering for just being for what God wants you to be. And it gives our suffering gives us the ability to, uh, to help somebody else, to identify with their suffering. And boy, I think the greatest verse that will ever come out of this book uh, and the greatest concept that we'll ever use in ministry was the defining verse of, of, of ministry in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says about who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. That's a great principle and a great verse. It really says everything what ministry is. And, you know, if someday, guys, if you ever step out and you pastor a church or you get into a place where you're working in a, a, a ministry as on, on a level of being a deacon or an elder or whatever, you, you go in any church, this one or whatever one, there's no better plan for a Christian, certainly no better plan for a pastor who wants to build a church uh, and to reach people than to uh, become one with the people that you have and through their suffering and through their tough times. So many preachers, and I've seen this all my life. So many preachers um, stand like at the top of the stairs and yell down at everybody on the bottom landing to get up here where they're at. And that's basically what most churches do and most pastors do. But the Bible teaches that the way to reach people is not to stand up there and yell at them to get up where you're at, but rather go down those stairs and put your arm around them and walk them up the stairs one step at a time. You know, that's exactly what you have to do. And, uh, you know, many pastors uh, preach, uh, you should give up some things in your life. And probably that's very true in many cases. There are some things in our life that we need to give up. And pastors are famous for preaching to people about getting rid of this, getting rid of this, dumping this, get away from this, walk away from this, stop this, stop that. But the problem is that you can preach that all day long and people probably need to give up many things in their life. But the word pastors and churches fail today is they don't have anything to give them to replace what they give up. Oh, we talk about the Bible. We talk about a relationship with God. But, you know, you're taking somebody that's just coming out of the world and somebody who maybe just gets saved and just 
you know, slap them on the back. I remember years ago I was in Rochester, New York, preaching uh, in, with Dr. Ruckman, in, in fact, in a Bible conference, and there was a number of pastors there. And back then I was still pretty young at all this, and, uh, and I, 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 would, I learned to listen back then. And I was driving someplace, and I, uh, I forget, uh, you know, Dr. Ruckman was sitting over here. I was sitting in the back seat with him, and there was a couple of other guys up front. And they were big-time pastors, you know, and they were talking about things. And uh, I, I, uh, they were talking about problems in their churches. And uh, the one guy, and he was a very famous guy, I mean, uh, in, in fundamental circles at that time. And he was talking to the other pastor, and they were talking about solving problems in their church. And this guy actually said, he said, and this is the mentality back then, and it's much the mentality today. He looked at the pastor, and he said, well, here's what I believe. I believe that if a person will just do uh, three things, that they'll solve all the problems in their life. And the pastor said, well, what are those three things? And he said, well, it's easy. He says, first, if they'll just come to church, if they'll start to tithe, and they'll get involved in ministry, they can solve every problem in their life. And I thought to myself, as I heard him say that, I looked over at Dr. Ruckman, he just kind of winked at me, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and I thought to myself, that's the mindset today. There's nothing in there of, of getting into somebody's life and helping them. I can throw out a mandate about everything uh, and say, if you make this mandate, if you do what I'm telling you to do, you're going to really be spiritual, but that's not going to make you spiritual. I wish it was that easy. I wish you could just do three things and become spiritual, but it doesn't work that way. Never has worked that way. And the tragedy today is that most pastors, uh, they, they really don't have a clue uh, they don't have a plan. You know, I've had many of you come into my office and you've had problems in your life and things that you were struggling with. And I knew at that point when you came over that there was no way in just you coming over and talking to me and telling me what your issues were. And I knew there was no way that we were going to solve your problems by just coming over and telling me what your problem is. And, and, I, and I, many of you, I've told you, you know, that when you came in, uh, you came in with the doom and the gloom of what you're struggling with, and when you left, it was like you were a different person. Not because that your problem was gone, but what you got in that hour that we sat down there is we worked out a plan that you and I together with the people in this church could step by step get you through that problem. And pastors don't have plans for people today. Uh, they just want people, they want their money, they want everything they bring in, but they don't have time for them when, uh, when they really, you know, the, the, the crunch really comes. And uh, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a lot of pastor friends. Kevin and I was talking about this week when he came over. I, I don't have a lot of pastor friends. Most pastors have a group that they uh, hang out with, you know, a little contingency of guys, and, uh, you know, to get away from it all. You know, and they, they couldn't get together maybe every month, two, three months. And in fact, we had a young guy that left our church here to start a church. And he called me a couple months ago and he said, hey, do you know this guy and this guy? And I said, yeah, I know those guys. And he said, well, he said, they're kind of driving from two different places and we meet together and they have invited me to come and we just have some time when we, we kind of encourage each other and, you know, and just kind of really get our heads straight on, on where, uh, what we're doing and just kind of really help each other and encourage each other and, and, and all of that. And I didn't say anything to him, but, I, but I've been in this business for a while and I, I, I know what those things are. I know how that they work. You know what? You get together to get away from it all. Really? 
Get away from what? You encourage each other. No, what you do is just crying each other's beard. That's all you do. In reality, those little sessions are just, you know, uh, to encourage each other in their respective failures in building a church. You know, a couple of years ago in Kansas City, the Southern Baptist Convention had their, their, their national fellowship here, here in Kansas City. And I went, remember, I went down because I wanted to hear, you know, what was going on and just what they, what they had to say and, and just for nothing else, the better to do. And uh, they, had a, they had their meeting here in Kansas City, and they, and they all do it. They have what they call statewide fellowships where all the pastors in the state get together, and then they have a national fellowship once a year where they come from all over the country. And you probably don't know this, and this is good for you not to know because it, it, a lot of things that goes on in Christianity I'm really happy you know nothing about. And, uh, you know, but what they do is they, they have these little fellowship groups. Uh, the area here that, and I grew up in this fellowship, no longer connected with it in any way, shape, or form, but was what was commonly called a Baptist Bible Fellowship. The Baptist Bible Fellowship headquarters is in Springfield, Missouri. Baptist Bible Fellowship came into being because of the split between J. Frank Norris and, uh, and Beecham Vick uh, uh, many, many, many years ago. And out of that came the Baptist Bible Fellowship. But there's a many of them. There's South Side, there's North Side, there's East West by East Side, and they're everywhere. And what they are, they're groups of Baptist churches, and uh, they're, they're like, uh, they all, every, every year or a couple of times a year, they'll, they'll get together and they'll have their state or their national fellowship meeting. So I went down here, and there was at least 3,000 pastors here from all over the country. And they came to, and they deal with the issues that they're facing in churches today. It's kind of like the Council of Nicaea in 325 where 300 preachers showed up to determine what Christianity was going to be for all the rest of Christians, you know. And so I went down there that night because I wanted to hear this guy speak and basically his theme was, and it was the theme of the whole week, why our churches are failing. So I thought, man, I'll get some good stuff out of this because uh, evidently this guy's going to drop the hammer on him and it's a big hammer, and well, well, well I, this is going to be some good stuff. So I went down there, and I was never more disappointed in my life. The guy got up there, and for 45 minutes, you got to be done in 45 minutes because you all got to go eat. <laughs> and in 45 minutes, he basically told them that the reason why churches were not growing today and our churches and our group were not growing today is because nobody wants to go to church anymore, that nobody gets saved today like they used to get saved. And then he went on and he talked about how that it's not any of you guys' fault, it's not our fault, but the bottom line is that uh, across this country, churches' attendance and churches are in decline. So even though we're feeling it now, it's okay to be that way because it's happening all over the world. And I thought to myself, man, what a waste of 45, you give me that 45 minutes. What a waste of 45 minutes. But that's really all they ever do. And that's when little pastors get together in little groups. That's what they do. They blame their problems on the people. They'll say, well, it's your fault your ch- our church is not growing. It's your fault we don't have any money. It's your fault we- people are leaving our church. And uh, that's exactly how they operate. And, you know, I've told you many times, you know, I'm, I'm old school in one thing, and I believe simply that, that everything rises and falls on leadership. I believe that with every fiber of my body. I believe that the past, pastoring a church is a very unique thing. I think that if your church is successful and you get growing and you have a great 
everything is going the way it's supposed to go and people are getting saved and people are growing and the Spirit of God is all over the place, then if, that, if it's that kind of a success, then the pastor has really nothing to do with it. But if it's a failure, if it's absolutely a failure, then a pastor has everything to do with it. And you take that, what I just said, and chew on that for about 30 years and maybe you'll come out a little wiser than you are today because everything rises and falls on leadership. Building a church today will be either the easiest thing you ever do, it'll be the worst thing you ever do, but God lets you choose which way it's going to go. And I, I, stay, I stay as far away from that stuff as I can. My fellowship, my friends, my friends in ministry are you folks right here. It's you. My co-laborers. I'm like Paul and his boys and the people that he lists over and over and over again. Uh, we have a great time together. I, I don't know what I, where, on, where could I go on planet Earth that would be more exciting than we are at and what God is doing with us right now. Every time we go to restart, every time we do something, every time we have a volleyball, my God, a funeral yesterday turned into the most exciting evangelistic movement that I've seen in, the, in my ministry for a long time. Everything, why would you want to be disassociated as a pastor from what that is? Why would you want to go and mope and, and complain about what you don't have and what, and the reason why they do is because there's nothing going on. I told you that, and I told you this many, many times, I told it to you some time ago, is the fact that uh, one guy can't do it all in any church. And a smart pastor will realize that, and he'll understand that the number one job of a pastor is simply to reproduce himself in his people in his church. You've heard me say it many, many times, that a family will be exactly what the father is, and a church will be exactly what the pastor is. You want to know what kind of a, a man is with his relationship with God? Look at his family. You want to see what kind of church a man has? Uh, what kind of, uh, you want to see what kind of a pastor you have? Look at the church. It's just that simple. Why? Because everything rises and falls on leadership. Leadership is the key. And, but a pastor, a smart guy that understands it, he realizes he can't do everything himself. There's no way that he's going to be able to do that. So what he does, he reproduces himself into people. He realizes that you build a church one person at a time, one couple at a time. So he gets 30 or 40 people doing the ministry exactly the same way that he does by the book. Then in time, it grows to 60 and 70 people. And the key to church growth, the key to church growth is to get 60 to 70 or as many as you can, uh, people who are dealing with people one-on-one -on -one and doing exactly what the job of the pastor should be. And when you see the hand of God, when you see that happening, then you see the hand of God uh, go to work. And uh, some couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody got a great verse out of Proverbs chapter 11 and asked the question, verse 25, I forget who it was, but it was probably one of the greatest questions that have been asked in a long time. And that verse in Proverbs eleven twenty-five says, the liberal soul shall be made fat. And he that watereth shall be watered also himself. And I took that verse and I told you, one of the greatest verses on ministry anywhere in the Bible. And it simply talks about the fact that the liberal soul shall be made fat. Oh, I knew it was. It was uh, Darren asked that question because he wanted a definition of a liberal. 
And I told him that that liberal definition there is not the same as a liberal that we think about in our country. The liberal soul here is somebody who gives himself to everything that God wants him to do. And when you do that, you become fat. Fat in the Bible, in that sense, is a good thing. It's the fatness of God. It's like having the the best in your vineyard, having the best fruit, the best everything you can have, filled with the fatness of all of the blessings that God has. And then the verse says, in a great verse, it says, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. And I talked about how watering is putting out the word of God. The thing that will make you grow, the thing that will bring you to the point where you really, really, really understand the aspect of ministry and will bring you from level to level to level in your life is when you start teaching and putting out the Word of God. You can't water without being watered yourself. And I, and I see it all the time. The single most satisfying thing for me as a pastor is to watch you grow as how you learn to deal with people. I have people that are working with people and they're dealing with people and they'll call me up on the phone and they'll say, hey, we got a scenario here and this is what I did and this is how I handled it. I just wanted to run it by you so you would know where we're at to keep you in the loop and this is what I did and I hope you, I, it's okay that I said this. And I'd say to them and I'd think to myself, that's exactly what I would have said. That's exactly textbook the way I handled it. And there's nothing else in this world that proves to me that a little bit of what I'm saying is getting into your ears and affecting your life. It's how you learn to deal with people and circumstances. And I see you taking the biblical principles and and using them in the way that you're dealing with the situations that you're in. And you're seeing that now develop the second and third level people. Yeah, I know there's always room for improvement. There'll never be a time in your life or my life when we can say, well, we're here now. We don't have to go any farther. No, that'll never happen. But what happens and makes a healthy church is when God's people start actually taking what God is giving them and they start watering somebody else with that, giving them the Word of God, and nothing will, I'm going to say it again, nothing will grow you faster or quicker then getting your life and your attitude focused on the Word of God and then giving out the Word of God and letting God grow you and teach you by what you're doing with somebody else. And when you get to this place in your life or your church, you don't have to schedule revival. You drive down the road and you say, Revival, October 21st and November 8th, you know. You don't have to do that because real revival is not done by scheduling. Real revival, every church that is a Bible-believing church that's on fire for God <clears throat> should live in a constant state of revival. There should be so much going on and so much excitement of what God is doing, so many people and lives being changed and getting saved that you just virtually live in a complete, constant state of revival of what God is doing. But revival always starts in our hearts. Revival doesn't start by penciling in on a calendar. When you write it in as a pastor in your notebook and make up your signs, God doesn't pencil in his, all right, November 12th, let's send the Holy Spirit of God down there and shake him up. Doesn't work that way. But that's where we've come to in Christianity. That's what our understanding is of ministry today. And I'm telling you, I talk about the miracle of what God gave us down in our, in our homeless ministry, in our restart. And I told you, I told you, <coughs> that when we started that, in a year's time, that, that we would have basically be able to do whatever we wanted to do down there. And I didn't mean that boastfully. I just meant that, that I know how God operates in scenarios like this. 
And, you know, little did I know. And now it's coming out some of the things that were behind the scenes that, that you hear about as you, you go. You see, the pastor's job is to get the vision from God. That's not the deacon's job. It's not the elder's job. It's not, you know, the finance committee's job. It's, it's the pastor's job. The pastor should have a relationship with God that God shows that man exactly what he wants that man to do. It's the pastor's job to make that vision clear to the people. Then it's the people's job to get behind the pastor and grasp that vision and fulfill that vision. It's just that simple. Somebody asked me last week, we had our deacons, you know, on on Thursday night, and somebody asked me, you know, what what is the uh, one of the main qualifications that you look for in a deacon? And obviously, the qualifications are found in First Timothy, and you use those as a general guideline. But I'll tell you, the, even more than that, the number one thing that I look for in men uh, who are going to uh, be with me in ministry is one-on-one and help me to that level is simply one thing. Do they see the vision that God has given me, and do they understand what that vision is? You can be a deacon or anything else in the world, and you not have the vision, and it ain't going anywhere. My job, everything rises and falls on leadership. My job is to get the vision and go with it and show you what it is. Your job is to decide if it is the right vision for you, and if it is, get on board. If it isn't, find some place where it is your vision, whether it be a 52-inch or a 60-inch or whatever the case may be. Last uh, Sunday night after the last time we were at Restart, Catherine, who is the head of of all the volunteer stuff. This is the second time now that she's come out to uh, eat with us afterwards. And, uh, and you guys have done a phenomenal job down there. I, it just, you know, it's a thing where uh, we're going to even make it better. But I had no idea things were moving along so quickly. And uh, you know what our overall goal is. They have, you know, and, and the, the, the wonder in the, and when we, we could have went to any place, well, we went to a place that has no affiliation with any religion, any church, anything at all. And I said, here's who we want to help. Now, we've all been connected with the City Union Mission for many, many years, and we still go down there every third Sunday. But could you imagine going into the City Union Mission and trying to do what we do? You have to argue about losing your salvation. You have to argue about speaking in tongues. You have, well, when John Busquette and I were down there trying to work out some things with them, they had us hooked up with guys that uh, were on the street uh, laying on hands on people and casting out demons, and, and that's, they wanted to hook us up with that. You see, we don't have any of that to fight. We have a group of people that don't care anything about, didn't care anything about God, didn't know anything about the Bible, didn't want anything to do with church. So when God gave them to us and us to them, it was a clean slate right down the line. It was the purest field to work in because you don't have, hey, I'll take just good old-fashioned garden variety sinners every day over the Christian junk. But it ain't nearly as complicated. So we went down there for a meeting, and the head woman who was in that meeting with three or four of them, she pulled her ladies into the office before we came there. And I found this out last week. And she said, now look, we ain't changing nothing for this church. They're just like every other church. We ain't changing our schedule. We're not doing the thing. We're just going to keep what we're doing. If they want to fit in, fine. If they don't, fine. We know how it works with churches. They come, they say they're going to do this, and we never see them again. We met with them for about an hour after the meeting. She called those same ladies back in, and she said, oh, give them anything they want. I think we really got something here. 
So we're, Catherine is over there, and she's eating with Jamie last Sunday night, and she says, whoa, you guys are certainly doing some real recruiting down here, aren't you, for your church? Jamie says, what are you talking about? And she's telling me this story, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, I've already got visions of somebody in my head going around and passing out tracks, come to church, you know, and, and doing exactly what we don't want anybody to do down there. And I'm sure Jamie's thinking the same thing. And Jamie said, well, I'm not, we're not making any... Re-. She said, oh, yes, you are. And she said, well, what do you mean? And she said, three or... She named them off. Three or four, and they're up high-level people. They want to come and join your church. They want to be part of your church. One of them is Jimmy that works in the kitchen. Your, 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 your husband, yeah, your, your husband is just, he, I mean, they just, you guys have made such an impact down there. And now they're talking about, that's the church we want to go to. Now, this is the place that had no church just two months ago. Wanted nothing to do with the Bible, had no religion. But they're not saying, we want to go to this church, uh, but we got to find out if they believe in speaking. They don't know any of that stuff. They just know because they saw a bunch of people come down, not ask for a thing, and made of themselves part of their suffering and what they're going through. To go down and take the load off of them. To go down and feed them. To go down and be consistent with everything that we do. Now, bottom line is this. Do I care if they come to church here? Absolutely not. Am I going to go down there and ferret them out and say, when you come into church? If they never come to church, I don't care. That's not my goal. You know what will happen? They'll come to the place where it'll keep moving. Now, this is only in three or four months. It'll keep moving. It'll keep going. It'll keep developing. And more people will want to come. And one side down the line, maybe six months from now, a year from now, people will maybe come and can't come and try to come. It's too far. They can't. They can't make it all the time, and they really want it. You keep making an impact. And then out with somebody will say, well, really, I really like to come to your church, uh, but we know it's a long way, and we don't have a way to get there, and, and, uh, but we really like what you guys do, and boy, we'd love to be part of that. And you know what the obvious thing is going to be? Okay, you can't come out here to us. How about if we send a group down to you? We're already seeing it happen. You're already making a difference, an impact into their lives. You're already coming to the point where the people there who are in charge are seeing a difference. We've asked nothing from them. We've asked nothing from them. We will not ask nothing for them. Even when the people want a Bible, my goodness, they ask for a King James Bible. We have done nothing down there to promote that. We've done nothing down there to incite that. That is God's Holy Spirit working through a bunch of people who grasp the concept that ministry is giving and not getting. It is you making the personal sacrifices of your life, of going down there when you got to go to work that night, or maybe you're tired, or maybe you don't feel good, but you realize that that is the open door that God has given, and you're going to not miss it, and you go into that thing, and God uses you. We got our group, Sean's group, that works down along the river. We had heard of the homeless camps, but could not find them. Well, we have a group, and I deb them the river rats because that's all they do. And they have, in the last four or five weeks, 
developed a ministry down there. Hey, folks, I don't, Sean's got some pictures he's going to show you. He's going to get them together, and we're going to do a PowerPoint on them. But you cannot believe. It's like stepping back into the 1800s, and we're only a mile from the city center. They're building log cabins down there. They're having little communities down there. And they're, they're, they're self-sufficient. You ought to see how that they, they get their water in and how they do this and how they do that, how they heat their place. It's unbelievable. And yet, it's only a mile, maybe not even a mile. It's like stepping back into the 1800s. Nobody even knows they exist. And they're all along that river area. And one of the guys that God has tied uh, that group into is a saved man. He calls his cabin Hope House. He does what he can try to do. And he's one of the night. He invited us down to go fishing in the river. He, he, I'm telling you. I'm telling you right now. Six months from now, you talk about an old circuit riding ministry. When we were done with church, we'll send some teams down there and hold church services right down inside those camps. That guy will be the key. I'm telling you, just as I told you that restart was the key to what getting us into the city, guys like that, when we go down and help them, we get them what they need, we help them as best we can, we do the things for them to help them, and, and God develops that, and this guy hears about it, this guy hears about it, you take food down through there, and that all the teams are incredible, but you guys are really developing the inward where you're just making your own things happen. Sean called somebody he hasn't got a hundred rotisserie chickens last week. I looked at him, I wanted to eat one of them. <laughs> Going down there and doing those kind of things and stepping outside the box. God always will bless that. Jim said it last Sunday night when he gave his testimony about him and his wife joining this church. He laid it out so clearly when he talked about that it was simply for him getting out of his comfort zone. If somebody would have told him that six months uh, ago that he would be down there feeding the homeless and passing out this and doing with that, he'd have said he was nuts. But he's learned, he's learned through a New Testament ministry that the ministry is giving, it is reaching out, it is going down, not just screaming down there with a loudspeaker, you guys need to get cleaned up your life and get right, who doesn't already know that? Somebody's got to go down there and walk them out and show them, and maybe they'll never come out of that lifestyle. Some of them have chosen that lifestyle, and that's how they want to live. Nothing wrong with that. A hundred years ago, everybody was living that way. But that doesn't mean they don't need the gospel. And that doesn't mean that we can't use any given circumstance or situation that God presents us. If we are willing to bend and yield to be able to do those things that God wants us to do, it, we, can, we can have an impact. We can have an impact. We can have an impact. I, I watch the street teams. You guys that work down there at 16th and Cherry uh, with those 80-some guys standing down there. I drove in the other time uh, last week and down there to see, check on things and see what was going on. And, and I, I saw the ladies over here with their tables up doing the food and the coats and all that stuff. And there was the guys all stretched out along that wall just sitting there talking to those guys, making sure they had what they needed, just talking with them, just spending time with them. It wasn't here, here's a hot dog, we're on our way. It was a thing that you actually sit down with them and talk to them. 
You dialogue with them. And after week after week, they, you get to know them by name. They get to know you. I, I see it in, our, in Will's team there at the park. And, you know, where they're, they're there week, time after time. And the people are coming by in the summertime. That was a hot spot because all the homeless camps, uh, some of them in the city, were up along the freeway. And then the groups that worked from, from, you know, from Front Street all the way up to the uh, Grand and down the Central Corridor. You know, add to add, add to add the prayer teams and the, and the, and the marital counseling and the discipleship and the one-on-one that is developed uh, out of the prayer teams and everything that God has given us. Then we're going to get into volleyball, and that's always an impacting time with what goes on. You see, I'm telling you, this is why I told you that 2 Corinthians is the right book to go through for where we are at as a church. And what we're doing is taking what God has put right in front of us and what God has given us and using it. There was a miniseries out that I think probably... uh, Back in the 90s, was uh, Tom Hanks and Spielberg put out. Many of you have seen it. It's something that uh, I think is one of the greatest uh, things that really ignited a great spark with people going back to World War II uh, in their heritage and all of those things. And it was a miniseries called The Band of Brothers. And it showed how that men who were in combat together that went through some really tough times, no matter what happened, they were forged together in a way that that they can never be separated. And I I look at things like that, and I I think that, you know, this is why I would rather spend time with you, be with you, that you are are the people that I fellowship with, you are the ones that I want to hang out with. Why would I want to go around and, and, and mope and dope about all of these stupid things when what God is doing and how he's opening up the doors? You are my pastor friends. You are my teacher friends. You are my co laborers together. I think Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, and this has always been a verse that's been absolutely in my mind about what I do in ministry, where he said there to the Thessalonians, he said, so being effectually desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. What a great verse. You see, you see it again when Paul wrote to the Philippian church in the book of Philippians. This is the church where on all the other churches, he has to deal with issues that they're struggling with. He doesn't do that. The thing that sets the book of Philippians apart, and I told you before that Philippians got 10 of the greatest concepts that if you didn't have anything else in the Bible, you could exist as a Christian on those 10 concepts. And they're found in the book of Philippians. They're found in the book of Philippians because the book of Philippians is unique to any other book in the Bible. It's the only book that, in the only church that Paul writes to that he doesn't have to deal with them on some kind of issue or deal with them on some kind of problem. And here lies the difference. This is what makes the difference. And to understand ministry, you've got to understand what I'm saying today. There are churches that are different. Philippian church was different. Paul had a closer relationship with that church and those Christians more than any other church. Yes, he loved them all. He did. And he did whatever he needed to do. But here was a church. Here was a church. And the difference between this church and all the other churches, that all the other churches Paul had to minister to, in this church, he ministered with. They were part of his ministry team. He ministered not only to them, he ministered with them. 
and them with him. And that's the key. I look for Christians, and I know that there'll always be, my job will always be ministering to you in some fashion or the other. But I look for you to get to the place in your life where it's not just me ministering to you, but it's me and you ministering to others together. That's the key. That's where a church has to get to. That's where a pastor has to get his church to be, where it's not just the pastor always running around ministering to everybody, because that's impossible, but it's getting everybody with the pastor to minister to others. That's what it takes. That's what you have to get to. And that requires some things that, you know, that, uh, that does have to make a difference in your life. So as we move along today, I want to remind you again of our four-point little outline here that we're using all the way through this. I told you that as we come through this book and we compare it to what we're doing, and we look at the new lessons we're going to learn about ministering to people, we talked about examining yourself. Don't examine the person next to you. Don't complain about the person next to you or what you like or don't like about them. You examine yourself. The second thing is know yourself. Be honest with who you are. Be honest with the things that you've got to change about your life. I tell married couples all the time, the reason why married couples have so many problems, it's so simple. I've never met a, got into a complicated problem in dealing with people in all of my life. It's always a simple thing. People make it much more complicated. The way to, I tell married couples all the time, look, you're yelling at him to be what he wants to be. He's yelling to you to be what he wants you to be. If you two would just stop worrying about each other and you, sir, would start being everything you need to be and you would start being everything you need to be, your problem would go away. You can't change her. You can't change him. The only people you can change is yourself. But it's easier to try to work on changing somebody else because in reality, we really don't want to change who we are in many cases. And that's where problems come in. It's easy. It's not hard. You just got to be, understand these concepts. Now, when you come down through here, he says, examine yourself, know yourself, take heed to yourself, then prove yourself. Last time, we saw a great Bible principle uh, to get us through any situation, if you remember in verse 10. We spent some time on this, but boy, I hope you marked it in your Bible. Who delivered us and doth deliver us in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. We talked about how that when it talks about who delivered us, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he sets you free from the penalty of sin and doth deliver us. Today as you and I live, because you are saved, God has delivered you from the power of sin. And then the third one, in whom we yet do trust when God comes back, uh, and sets up his kingdom, he's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. What a great three-point outline and concept. So with that in mind, today we're going to pick it up in verses 12 through 16, and very quickly here, uh, look at some great concepts that I think that will help us uh, now that we kind of got our heads back in what we have been talking about. But here's what he says in verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshy wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have laid our conversation, have had our conversation in the world, uh, and more abundantly to you, word. For we write none other things unto you than that ye read or acknowledge, that I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus." And in this confidence, 
I was minded to come unto you before, that you might have a second benefit, uh, and, to pa- and, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and come again out of Macedonia unto you, uh, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. Now, Father, uh, we ask you to bless us today as we come to your word. Take these great truths and help us be better in what we do. Help us to realize that you've given us something so special here, so unique. You actually have allowed us to, to reach in and do things, Father, that, uh, that, uh, that are so fantastic. And, Lord, it's because of these good people. It's because that uh, people are reproducing themselves, and they, they've got the world out of their life, and they want to do what God wants them to do. And they're doing it by the book, not by flying by the seat of their pants and making up the rules as they go along. And help us today, Father, to learn. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a couple of things here today, uh, some lessons to learn. You know, I teach people all the time that in any given situation, and situations vary. It can be a, just a, a, a situation you've got to deal with. It can be a person you've got to deal with. It may be a problem that people have or somebody you're working with. I always tell people that work with me, and I keep it pounding it into their ears, and you hear me say it a lot, that the key to really helping people is simply one thing, being smarter than the situation you're dealing with. Uh, you can't allow your emotions to get caught up in it. Uh, the moment you do, then you're at a disadvantage. One of the great keys, I think, to, uh, to being a successful preacher and a successful communicator is being able to keep your own spirit under control. Uh, there'll be times in your life that you're faced with a great, a great thing you've got to do. And if you really stopped and took the face off of it and looked at it, it would scare you to death when you stop and realize how much responsibility lies on you to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to, to make sure everything pulls together. And, uh, and the key to being able to do that is to, one, have the confidence in the Word of God, but two, keep your own spirit under control. You don't get emotionally charged with it. You don't get nervous. You don't let things uh, get you off track. You have your spirit in such control by the principles of the Word of God that when you step up to the pulpit or you step up to whatever job you got to do, that you know exactly what the task is. You're focused on exactly what it gets you got to get done. And it's the biblical principles that dictate how you get it done. There's no nervousness to it. There's no anxiety to it. Oh, there might be excitement to get in there and, 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 and tear it out. I preached in places where there was 5,000 people that if most guys, many guys would, and you can always tell a pastor when he gets up, you know, if he's nervous by the stupid things that he says. Uh, he'll get up and he'll talk about, well, I've never preached in this crowd before and, and all of those things. And, and somebody else will say, well, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I didn't really prepare good this week. As I, my thing is, and sit down and shut up. If you don't recognize the opportunity God gave you and you're not like a lion chomping at the bit back there to get up there and give them what God said, then get out of the way and let somebody else do it. You've got to have a confidence that you know that, and you've got to have your own spirit under control. And that simply comes down to being smarter than the situation, realizing that uh, the problem is always covered in the principles of the Word of God. You stay with those principles. You know those principles. And as it says down here in verse 12, not with fleshy emotion, uh, fleshy wisdom. And that's exactly what your emotions are. It's of the flesh. And you operate by what what your flesh thinks. And every time your flesh gets involved, it's going to be a problem. Most Christians have their own homespun theology of how to fix any problem. And it's usually wrong. It's like grandma's concoction for fixing the common cold, you know. 
a little lemon juice, a little bit of corn syrup, and, and a half a bottle of Jack Daniels. Yeah, you just get so drunk, you don't even know you're sick. But anyway, but it's a thing where you've got to be able to use the principles. You've got to be able to learn how in any given situation you have to respond and not react. You know, ministry is twofold. Ministry, and you've heard me say it before, ministry is inward and then it's outward. Ministry transforms you internally. When you start to change who you are through an internal transformation, then the other aspect of ministry is outward, and that'll be an outward manifestation of the inner transformation. And that's exactly how it works in our lives. Now, the first thing he says here is something he calls in ministry, and I think dealing with people, and I think it's vital. And it goes with what I've just told you about being smarter than a problem. And it's talked about here, he says this, and here's our first phrase we want to look at, the testimony of our conscience. Now, that is a great thing if you can ever grasp it. In any situation, nothing beats a good conscience toward God in what you're doing. He's telling them that in his dealing with them, he has a good testimony of a good conscience before God. Even though he said some harsh things to them, and he said some hard things to them, as God's man, he told them the truth and what they needed to hear uh, that would help them. And in dealing with people, in dealing with circumstances, sometimes you have to say some hard things. Sometimes you have to say some harsh things. But you've always got to look back in your life and ask yourself the motive behind what you did, what you did. Nothing will beat the testimony of our conscience. You know, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7 is a great principle. And uh, it's, a, it, it's a great verse. And it simply says, The full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every better thing is sweet. Boy, that is a great verse. I learned that verse many, many years ago. Because, boy, you talk about somebody who could take the hide off the wall. Uh, my father and the Lord, Mel Sabaka. He could tear the paint off, the hide off, and just about everything and scrape it down to nothing uh, when he preached. And he didn't, he didn't mix any words. He called it exactly what it was and laid it out exactly the way it was. And many, many years ago, I realized that God had put that man into my life that I was ever going to go anywhere. It was going to be that I learned what that man had already known. And I knew that I couldn't learn at all. But boy, I wanted to glean everything that I could. And one of the things that I had to get to in my life was this, the full soul. When you get filled with the things of the world, when you have more in you that's worldly than you do that's godly, that when somebody drops their hammer on you and preaches the Word of God, you're going to take offense to it. You're going to take it personal. You're going to get your nose bent out of joint. You're going to get upset about it because of the fact that your soul is full of the things of this world. But to the hungry soul, and all oh, that was me. I wanted everything he had to say. I wanted to know everything he knew. I realized that there was a man that had God's hand on his life and God was using him and I wanted to learn everything he could. He had the right to say whatever he wanted to say, however he wanted to say it. It never bothered me because I realized that I was a hungry soul and to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Christianity and God's people are no different today than they were in Paul's time. They never are. You know, getting down a great principle that you need to understand in ministry is simply this. You can't save everybody that needs to be saved. I wish we could. 
You can't fix every marriage that needs to be fixed. I think that's one of the most, these are the things that are the hardest things to deal with when you deal with people, especially if you love people because you, you, you see how simple it is. You see how easy it is. You see how if these people would just do this, if this guy would just do this, he would get saved. If this couple would just do this, they could put their marriage together. And you want it for them. And you pray for that. And you work and diligently labor for that. But at the end of the day, you can't fix every marriage. You cannot fix every marriage. You cannot get everybody saved. At the end of the day, in ministry, you need to realize you can't get everybody to do the right thing. But in ministry, you have to be able to look back and always realize who you're working for. You have to be able to look back and you have to be able to not take it personal. I think one of the greatest concepts in all of the Bible in, on ministry and people is found back there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. And it's a passage that has always been kept in my mind ever since I saw it many, many years ago because it is exactly where I'm at in my world and exactly where you need to be in your world. And it's a story of how that they, the nation of Israel wanted to uh, pick a king. And, and, and they wanted Saul. Now Samuel was the prophet and Samuel knew that Saul was the wrong guy. And he was troubled by the fact that God's people wanted a king like Saul instead of a king that God had for them. Put yourself in his situation. You're going to deal with people who want to make bad choices. They're going to continue to make bad choices. You know what the right choice is, and you get burdened and grieved because they make the wrong choice. And it affects you. It ruins your day. It brings you to the point where you may lose your focus. You may come to the point where you get so enthralled in all that's going on, like Samuel did. And he, Samuel argued with them. Samuel said, this is the kind of king you're going to get. They said, we don't care. Give us like a king like all the other nations. Samuel said, hey, guys, you're not supposed to be like the other nations. How many times I've seen myself in that scenario with God's people. How many times I've sat in my office and, and tried to tell somebody the road they were going down was the wrong road? How many times I've stood in this pulpit and preached messages that you knew that was absolutely uh, uh, where, whether it was by design by me or not, it was right where you were at and you know what you needed to do, but you simply won't do that. Nothing in ministry, nothing in ministry is more frustrating than that for somebody who ministers the Word of God. And Samuel found himself in that scenario. So Samuel did what I did one time. He whines to God. Lesson one, never whine to God. <laughs> Samuel goes to God and he says, well, God, he says, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I just, he said, I'm really bummed, man. I'll tell you, I, all that you want to do from them and, and I've tried to tell them and they still don't want to do this. And I'll tell you what, I, I just, well, I just, this thing has really shook me up. I don't, and God says, well, you sniveling little punk. What's your deal? He says, Samuel, learn a lesson in ministry. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And when you grasp that concept that when somebody doesn't like, when you tell them the truth, when somebody doesn't like, when you lay out what the Bible says, the good conscience and a testimony of a good conscience is simply this. Who are you working for? Yeah. 
Who are you doing this for? Are you doing it to win a personality contest? Are you doing it so you can win friends and influence enemies? Are you doing it so you can be the most popular person? No, you preach the truth, and when you have the good conscience toward God, you realize that the full soul loatheth a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul. That's what you're looking for, hungry souls. If you're not hungry today, then I can't feed you. You're already filled up with something else. I deal in hungry souls that are restart. How many times have you passed out a hot dog? Guy said, I just ate, don't want it. Well, what do you mean you don't want it? It's free. We brought it down here. We cooked these. We got these for you. I don't want it. I'm full. And when a child of God gets full of the world, full of self, full of the things of the world, then they're no longer a hungry soul. And I'm telling you, guys, I have nothing for full souls to eat. I deal in hungry souls. And that's how you got to look at it. And when you find people, you can't fix every man. You can't get everybody to do right. You can do to the cows come home. You can try your best. Somebody is always going to have a bad attitude about something because they don't want to do what's right. The only thing that will save you in all of that is a good conscience toward God and a testimony. You did what God wanted you to do. The truth. The truth. And that's just the way it is. As long as you look back and knew, you know, you did what you did to help them and not to hurt them, and you did what God wanted you to do based on what the Bible principle, it doesn't matter whether they see it or not. It doesn't matter if they accept it or not. If they got an attitude, there's nothing in life going to be right for them. You got to learn that. When people are out of fellowship with God, it doesn't matter what they read or what they see. It's all about where their attitude is. You know, in World War II, the men who survived great battles, and it was also true in Vietnam, the men that survived great, tragic, horrific battles, in the early days of World War II, that lost many of their friends and many of their buddies that they had trained with in basic and went on into Europe or the Pacific and, and then went into combat, guys that they had, a, had friendships with, when they saw those, their friends blown apart or die agonizing death, or they had to come back with all the pressure of war, would not have their buddy to talk to because he was killed that day. And they had to deal with that agony. And there were no funerals. Their bodies laid out and rotted. There was no place to get closure to it. It was just one day after another where you lost this guy today and you lost your other friend tomorrow, and tomorrow you might be the one that goes. They got to the point where when the new replacements came in, they didn't want anything to do with them. Somebody come up and say, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm from Ohio. They said, I don't even want to know who you are. I don't want to talk to you. Don't tell me, well, I got, are you married? I, got a, I don't want to know if you're married. Just stay away from me. Many young recruits thought that was a terrible thing, and they thought, wow, what's going on here? But they never understood you see, those guys were so filled up with losing their friends, they just could not stand to lose another one. And it was easy for them to push them away and say, I don't want to know you. I don't know, want to know anything about you because when you get killed, it'll be easier for me because I cannot go through looking at another dead friend's face with his guts hanging out all over the place. I just can't do that. And they pushed away every emotion they had. And they said, I don't want to know who you are because when you die and you get killed, I don't have any more emotions to spend. I don't have any more tears to put out. 
That happened in World War II. It happened a lot in Vietnam. We don't have that luxury in Christianity, folks. In the world that we live in, in Christianity and doing the ministry, not everybody's going to make it. We don't have the ability because five, six people didn't do what's right and quit coming to church to hold off everybody and say, we don't want to deal with you because I can't emotionally deal with this anymore. We don't have that option. We have to take them all. We have to give everybody the best chance. We have to realize that everybody gets a free shot and if five people fail and don't do it, if 20 people don't make it, if a marriage fails or this person goes back to the world or they don't do what's right, we got to realize that every time the ramp goes down on the door and you assault that beachhead, guys on the left and the right went down and people die. And people die spiritually. Some of them commit suicide spiritually. Some of them put God away, they do their own thing and they wind up in a spiritual mental asylum someplace. Their life is shot. Some of them uh, uh, do all kinds of things that that kills them, not physically, spiritually. And it's just as hard to deal with that as it is to deal with somebody getting killed coming into a beachhead. That was your buddy from basic training. The difference between that and this is simply this. This is how you don't take it personal. This is how you realize who are you working for? Who are you doing this for? Who do you serve? Who's the one that is, is, it isn't you that they reject. It's him that they reject. Get it down. It isn't anything personal. It isn't against you. It's against him. They can't see him. They can't cuss him out. They can't do anything to him. So they'll take it out on you. Learn it. Understand who you're doing this for. Realize that you are working for somebody else and be able to look back in your life and realize and see no matter what their response is. It's not my problem. I'm not responsible for your spirituality. I'm not responsible for you doing what's right. I'm only responsible for me doing what's right. I'm responsible for giving you the truth and then you do with it what you want to do. But I got a good testimony of a conscience before God. That's all I need. I want you all to make it. I want you all to be there. I want you all to be part of it. But I know that's not a reality. And I'm not going to lose my focus and and worry about the people who don't want to do what's right when I got a whole bunch of people that do want to do what's right. You got to keep it straight, folks. This is the ministry. This is the ministry. This is the way it works. And I say all of that simply because he says down here in verse 14, as also you have acknowledged us in part. See? Not everybody was happy with what Paul was doing. Not everybody was happy. He says, you have acknowledged us in part. There are some people who didn't acknowledge them. And you need to learn. In dealing with people in ministry, they won't always be happy with what you do. They're not always going to be happy with what I do. To some people, verse 14, look at it down there. For some people, you will be a rejoicing. Other people, you will be a cursing. You have to quickly learn and learn very quickly that in the ministry, not everybody wants to do what's right. 
There's a great principle in Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have it marked, you ought to mark it because it's a great one. And Paul says to the church at Galatia, now here's a church that he had to deal with. They're probably right on the ladder close to the church at Corinth before they got right. And they're not happy with Paul. They're, not, they're upset with him. He's rattled their world. He's called them on a carpet because of something they're doing that's not biblically based. And they're not happy with him. And he asked this question. And it's a question that I've asked. You better get it down because this is the question. In chapter 4, verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, let me answer that for you. The answer is, yes, you will. Yes, you will. Last week, I preached out of Zechariah chapter 7, and I, about 11, down through there, and I told you about the nation of Israel, how in verses uh, 11, down through there, and 12, I think it was, how they refused to hearken, and they pulled away the shoulder. They stopped their ears uh, that they not, that would not hear. Yeah, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law uh, and the words of the Lord. We were driving home, and my wife said, I, I never saw that verse. She said, that is one of the greatest. She says, you know what? When our daughters were growing up, that is the thing that they always got a spanking for. And I'm talking about what? And she said, that thing where they pulled away the shoulder. You know, you go up and you put your arm on somebody to try to talk to them, and they pull it away. And she said, because that was an act of defiance. And when they, you know what? I can deal with whatever problem a person has, just like she could deal with the kids. But when you go up to somebody who you want to help them, that you know what's best, and you put your arm, and it may not be physically putting your arm on them. It may be saying something to them that they need to hear, but they really don't want to hear it. And the reaction may be not physically, but the reaction inside is, I don't want to hear it. I got an attitude. Don't correct me about my being wrong. Pull that shoulder away. That's exactly what God's people do. That's what Israel did. You actually think that two billion people back there in Israel at that time all in command pulled the shoulder, really? He's showing you a picture of God's people's attitude about the Word of God and what it does and its effect. You see, real leadership has to see an understanding that the vision gets set. God has some things that he wants to be done. That in Paul's day, uh, not everybody was on board with him. It's no different today. Don't you think for a moment with all that God is doing down in Restart, everybody's happy with Restart. We had a New Year's Eve deal a couple of weeks back, and to me, they're always the greatest thing we do. But I guarantee you, there were people uh, in this church uh, that, that thought it was stupid, that think Restart is stupid. Well, we got together and voted, and we think you're stupid. You never, never, never let that element affect what you're doing. When you, as long as God is blessing it and he's pleased, that's all that matters. If you can look back in your life and you've done it by the book and there's no sin in it and it's absolutely by the word of God, what do you care what somebody thinks? If God is pleased and God is happy and you've been between the pages of the book, and you're doing it by the book, what do you care? That's where the conscience of a testimony before God comes from. You can look back because I'm telling you what, it'll, it'll, if you don't, 
If you don't keep in mind and learn these lessons, that the ministry is not just helping people by going through them with what they're experiencing, it's also having to deal with God's people who resent you doing it because it exposes them and what they're not doing. Like last week, they took two months a year and gave it all to God and lived like they wanted to the other 10 months. Now here, what you always stay focused on and why you have to keep the right heart, the right motive, and a good conscience toward God. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now in your Bible, you've heard me talk about it before. You talk about the day, that day. The day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ. Then you've heard me talk about the day of Christ. You've heard me talk about uh, the day of uh, Jesus uh, the Christ. And now here we have the day of the Lord Jesus. And that simply, my friend, will always be a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. You see, in ministry, the Christian has to clearly establish who he's doing this for and why because of the judgment seat of Christ. Everything we do, every person we date, Every relationship we have, everybody we marry, every decision we make, every attitude and every thought has to be viewed in the light of the judgment seat of Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus. Mel used to have a message that he preached. It was one of them loud, scary messages where the title was, Take Off That Mask! That God's people were hiding behind masks. And he'd go a little farther and he'd preach. You remember him preaching the Barbie? He'd go through a little farther and he'd preach and then he'd stop and he'd walk around the pulpit and he'd say, take off that mask! Well, by the end of the sermon, you're ripping your face off hoping that you can get off what he wants. <laughs> he'd walk back and forth and nail you a little bit more and he'd come back and talk about something and then he'd hit the other side. Take off that mask! What he was saying is that God's people put on masks to pretend they're something that they're not. But you see, the judgment seat of Christ is the day that we'll all take off the mask. Romans 2.16 says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Matthew 10.26 says, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Psalms 44 verses 20 and 21 says, If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God. Boy, that's a great verse for a Christian today. Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. You see that thing? You asked me a question. Uh, you asked me a question a couple of weeks ago, or I think it was last week, one of the ladies in the church asked me a question about Numbers chapter 7. I can't remember who was that. Oh, it was you. Yeah, you asked me a question about Numbers chapter 7. And she, her original question was, <coughs> how the setting up of the tribes, if, what that meant and everything. And I told her, I said, I, I have to look at it. I said, I can't recall. So I got home, you know, and, and I want you to think, you know, when you ask me something, I don't just blow it off. I go home and, and look through. So I got into that, and I, and I thought to myself, and I never, the tribe thing is, it was, was not the issue. When I got into that chapter, I saw that chapter for what it is. You know, that chapter is one of the most boring chapters in the Bible. It lists the 12 princes and it talks about what they gave, the sacrifices they made, how much they committed, and it's just 
one guy after another after another. It's like reading a ledger. It's absolutely the most boring thing you'll ever read in your life in the Bible. Nobody gets killed. No lions being eaten. Nobody thrown in lion's den. It's just a record, 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 record. And when I looked at that, Kathy, I stood back and I thought to myself, my God, there again in one of the boring chapters of the Bible. Do you know what you have? You have a record in that boring, obscure chapter that nobody would ever read. The greatest principle that God takes an account of everything we give. Every sacrifice we make. Everything we bring to Him. Everything we give Him. That chapter teaches that God keeps a record of everything we bring Him. And it's all going to go up against the day of the judgment seat of Christ. God shall not, shall not God search this out, for he knoweth the secrets of the heart. He will. See, you can hide it today. You can put it behind a mask. You forgot some things. You thought if the smoke was thick and the music was loud and the lights were dim that God couldn't see what went on. And that's just not true. And in that day, the mask is going to come off. All the phoniness is going to be revealed. You're much better off just to deal with it now. Job 34, 21 through 23 says, oh, I love this. For his eyes are upon the ways of men. Now, this is one you're going to want to mark down. He seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Here it comes. Here it comes. For he will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. Oh, I'm going under this tremendous thing God has put me under. God will never put you under anything more than to do right. You want to get out from under the burden? You want to get out from under the depression? You want to get out from under all of the stuff that's holding you down? It's real easy. God will never put more on you other than to do what's right. The burden you're carrying today is because you won't do what's right. He'll never put more on you and I other than to do what is right. And when you don't do what's right, that's where it comes in, brother. That's where it comes in. Because he says down there, for he will not lay upon man more than right. All God wants us to do is what's right. That's all he wants. He just wants you and me to do the right thing. And then he says this, that he should enter into judgment with God. You see, you're going to enter into judgment with God one way or the other. You're already going to do it in a service like this or after a Bible study or sometime when God whacks you with what you're not doing right in your life and you fall on your knees. That Bible says every tongue shall confess and every knee will bow to Jesus Christ the Lord, the glory to God the Father. You're going to bow your knee to him. It's only going to matter if it's here now in this life or at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a matter if you will. It's just a matter of when you will. But every man's going to enter into that judgment. For the unsaved man, it's the great white throne judgment. For you and me, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Then a Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You want some good advice in life, folks? Fear God and keep his commandments. For it's the whole duty of man. Then he says in verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. See, you can stand here today and tell me you're, you're not doing this or you're doing this and lie through your teeth. That mask looks so good. 
pal, you got it on so well, it looks like it's your real face. But in the end of the day, God's going to take off that mask. He's going to take it off. Because there's coming a day that God will right every wrong, make every crooked thing straight. There's coming a day that God is going to take everything we do, everything we think, everything we get into, everything we get involved with. It should be viewed and evaluated in the light of two things. One, the Word of God, which is the truth that God has given you. And secondly, the day that you're going to stand before God. Do they line up? And in that, my friend, those two things form the basis of the testimony of a good conscience. And that's why I keep pounding those Bible principles to you. That's why you can get into ministry when you understand this. That's why you can get into ministry and take it for God because it will come full circle. You realize that who you're working for and you realize that right now you've got to pay the reproach and bear the shame of him sometimes. Well, he did for you on the cross, but don't ever think there's a day he's not going to make it right. This is why you don't take the abuse this is why you don't take the ridicule or the personal attacks. This is why you don't take the slander, the lies, the half-truths. You don't take them personal. In ministry, you don't let those things get you off course, for it changes nothing. It changes absolutely nothing with what God is doing with you and for you. The more they hate you, the more God evens it out by blessing you and driving them crazy. Yeah, that's the greatest story in the Bible. Don't you remember back there in Genesis chapter 40 uh, there with Joseph and his brethren? Don't you remember that story? I mean, it covers up the whole thing from Genesis chapter 37 all the way up to chapter 50, if I remember right. Here's Joseph, who was his father's favorite, gave him a coat of many colors. The other brethren didn't care for it. They didn't like the fact that this guy was getting the blessings from the father, and they weren't getting any. Of course, they were corrupt now, you understand. So they devised a plan to get rid of the one that the father loved. So they come up with a plan. Oh, a very unique plan. First, they were going to kill him. Then they thought, no, that won't work. Let's just dig him in a hole and put him down there and we'll let him starve to death. And then money came into it and some Midianites came along and they said, you know what? It's better yet. Let's sell him into slavery. That way we'll never have to see him again. They had the most elaborate, unique, great, thought out, worked out plan that you could ever think of getting ready the one that God was blessing when God wasn't blessing them. But as Dr. Phil said, how'd that work for you? It came full circle, didn't it? They tried to get rid of him. They sow him into Egypt. God protects him in Egypt. God brings him full circle. A great Darth and a great famine come in there. And then now he's second in command in, in Egypt. And now this brethren who once hated him, who was despised the fact that the father loved him, have to come back and grapple at his feet for a little bit of corn. Now, you know what? A great lesson here. David could have had an attitude. If anybody had a right to have an attitude after what had been done to him, he had the right attitude to have one. He could have cut their heads off. He could have put them in jail. He could have said, let me see how you like being in a pit. I'm going to sell you into slavery and let you be out there doing all those things. But you see, David was smarter than that. David had the testimony of a good conscience toward God, and David never forgot who he was working for. And the greatest verse in the Bible, I think for me, that I never forget, it's something that has gotten me through this world and this life and all of the things in ministry, and it goes back to this great story. At the end of the day, 
when they're all restored back together and they're fimble-fumbling over themselves saying, I'm sorry, or you should have killed us. We're so sorry. David never took it personal. David never got to the place in his life, listen to me now, he never got to the place in his life no matter how bad it got, no how dark it became, no matter when it looked like he's in prison in Egypt and this Potiphar's wife is lying about him and all of these things, he never got to the place where he lost the concept and the passion and the purpose of what God was doing in his life. And at the end of the day, because he had that testimony of a conscience, when he looked back and they're saying, we're sorry, we didn't mean to do this, he had no regrets. He had no grudges. He had nothing to get even with because he understood what God had done. And he simply said in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, but ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for my good. Now, I'm telling you, folks, you've got to realize in ministry, because this next year, God's going to take us all up a couple more levels in ministry. I'm telling you right now. I told you what would happen in Restart. It's already happening long before. I told you what would happen in a homeless ministry. Hey, it's already happening long before I thought it would. And I'm telling you right now, with our church, with the way it's going, and the people coming in, and the people that want to get involved, and this thing is going to take off, and people are going to go up the levels, I'm telling you right now, you better decide. You better get past your little selfish things. You better get past stuck on yourself. You better start worrying about what other people think, and you better start focusing on the fact, who are you doing this for? Why are you here today? And in some of your cases, my suggestion to you would be a great sermon I heard many, many years ago. Take off the mask. Take off the mask. Listen, if I didn't believe that there was a day coming when God would set the record straight, well, I wouldn't put up with this crap in ministry for 10 seconds. But when you understand who you're doing it for, and you realize what that verse says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. It doesn't say the day of Jesus Christ. It says it doesn't say the day of Christ. This term is the day of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. The day you and I are faced to make Jesus our Lord. You're either going to do it now or you're going to do it then. But you are going to do it. You're either going to do it now and have the blessings of not only of this life of serving the greatest one who loved you, but the inheritance of the millennium and on into eternity. Or you're going to have your own thing, have it your own way, put up with the failed marriages, the disasters of life, and the uncertainty of life, and all the heartaches of life, all to give up what God wanted you to have. And then after that, lose your inheritance for all of eternity. It's simply that way. The day you are forced to make him Lord. The day the game stops. The day the record is made clear. The day you take off that mask. And in that day, only one thing will stand. It's the only thing that will stand. It'll be simply a testimony of our conscience before God. No one of us are perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to do dumb things. I never care about what a person's done, where they've been, or what they've done. I really don't. I only care about one thing, where you're at and where you want to go from this point on. That's the only thing that makes any difference to me. 
but I'm not under any illusion, nor should you be in ministry, because Paul said, you have acknowledged us in part. Not everybody's going to do what's right. Not everybody is going to want to make God in their life the way they should. Not every marriage is going to make it. There are going to be people come here, and they're great people, and they, but they're simply not going to do what they need to do individually to fix what they need to fix. There's going to be people that come in here that have relationship problems, and they're not going to be willing to do what they got to do. The fact that they are so lonely, or they want a boyfriend or a girlfriend, so overrides the principles of the Word of God that they actually just put them aside and do what they want to do, and then pretend. Take off the mask. Take off the mask. When it comes to God, it's His way or the highway. There's no second ground. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. How can two walk together except they be agreed? This next year, we're going to go to work on taking this church to the next level. You have before you the ministry and the opportunity to reach out and to grow and to actually see God using you. I went to our club meeting, my military club I belong to. Last Monday night, I go down once a month. You guys have no idea in the goofy little things that we do how God uses and impacts people. They were talking about March 3rd, which is a Saturday, is when they're going to have the Liberty Memorial thing that we always have down there where they bring in all the collection in and, and World War II, World War I, all that stuff. And they were talking about that, and, and, uh, and they, the, the, the president looked over to me. And, you know, they call me Brother Bob. Now, this is the godliest place, ungodly. They're all drinking beer. They're all down there with their meal. You know, they're a nice a bunch of guys, and they're very careful what they say, and they're, they're, but, but they're unsaved. But to them, I'm Brother Bob. And he looks over and he says, Brother Bob, he says, uh, I hope that your crew will come down and, and help set up next year. They remembered what you did. I think I told you that last year when you guys went down there on Friday and we worked all afternoon setting up the tables for it, they couldn't believe it. The guy that runs the treasury is one of the meanest old farts you ever met in your life. <laughs> no, I'm kidding you. I love him to death, but he, you never know what you're going to get from him. He stood up in that meeting. After we did that, he stood up in that meeting and he simply said, I want to make a motion that we give Bob's church a donation to help his church for what they did coming down there. And everybody, I almost said they said amen. I think a couple of them didn't say amen now that I'm thinking about it. But they all agreed to give Old Pass Baptist Church a donation. And I stood up and I said, gentlemen, it means more to me that you know that you guys would even think about that. And Chuck, thank you so much. But you know what? We're not going to take it. You know what? I got people in my church that served in the military and love this country, love God, and love what it's all about. And it's an honor for us to come down and do that. Right. We got more mileage out of going down and setting up ridiculously stupid tables. But you see, that's what God uses, doesn't he? Remember when Moses wanted to do, God wanted to do some great thing for him, and Moses, so many like God's people, was alibying, and he couldn't do it. And he said, how am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? Some of you are in that same boat. You wonder, how am I going to do this? Remember what God said to him? He didn't send him off to Bible college. He didn't say, well, get Bob's tapes back there on how to do it and make it do it better. He just simply looked down at Moses and said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? 
And Moses said, well, I just got a shepherd's rod. And he said, you know what? Then we'll just start with that. And it was that very little, basic, obscure shepherd's rod that turned into God's rod of judgment, that turned the waters of blood, that brought the fire down from heaven and turned the whole thing inside out. My point is simply this. God will just take, folks, whatever you have in your hand today. He's not asking you to be super knowledgeable about the Bible. He's not asking you to be about, uh, know all of the things that you need to know. He just wants you to take what's in your hand. And the great lesson out of that story of Moses is Moses said, Lord, I'm just not able to do what you want me to do. And God looked at him and he said, you know what, Moses? I don't ever remember asking you if you were able. All I want to know is, are you willing? Because Moses, if you're willing to use what you have right now in your hand, I'm able to use it for you. And that's where we're at today. None of us are able. Problem is that many of God's people today aren't willing. But if you are willing... He'll take you right where you're at. And that's why I accept you where you're at. That's why I never ask you to be anything other than who you really are. We can work through anything. Because you'll get to the point where you get the soul all empty from what's so full. And then you'll come to the Word of God, that great honeycomb, and every, even, every the bed, even the bitter things will be sweet. And that's what God will do in your world and do in your life. And that's where we want to go. I want to work with you teams and help you become more independent. I want to show you other ways that we can do some things and, and work on some things. In fact, I want to have a meeting at the end of Thursday night, this next Bible study with just the team leaders. And if you have somebody that's your second in command, bring them along. I want to talk to you. In fact, you can bring your teams if you want. I don't care. But I want to begin to talk about how you do this thing and, and even better than you already are. We've got to the first stage. The door's wide open now. We've got to continue to be smarter than this problems we're dealing with. And the only way we do that is to stay online with the Bible and take as many people in as God wants to bring into us that we can use. That's how we'll get it done. And in the process, you'll learn ministry. You'll grow. But the things I told you today are vital because with ministry, it's not just about helping those who need help. It's about working around the ones who do not appreciate what you're doing and think it's stupid. Father, Father, 